morning, everyone. Nice to see you again this morning. Now we can do a proper introduction. Um, both of our summer students are here today. Good morning, Madison. We Madison was here last week. Good to have you back for the summer. And in the back is Isaac Kwan. He couldn't be here last week, but he's here this week. And we're glad to have both of you. Angie and I are thrilled to work with you for the summer. Um, so we'll get to know them a little bit later. But why don't we just, uh, why don't we pray together? God, we're thankful for your presence with us this morning. I'm thankful for every person who's here today. And we think of those who couldn't be here for various uh, for various reasons. But we're glad uh, to be together uh, with you. We're always in your presence, but uh, your presence feels much more real when we're together. So we're thankful for this. We're thankful for how you've kept this community uh, safe. Um, we're thankful for your providence and protection. And uh, not just for that, but for lots of reasons, we bring you the praise and glory that only you deserve today. And we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, uh, this time we're going to sing. Um, we're, it's okay to sing if we got masks, but thank you, Dave, for your leadership in this. Uh, we're going to sing a couple songs together. Nice to see everybody, even though I can't see your smiling faces. I know you're smiling. So I had the grandkids over yesterday, and we got our pool, and swimming in the pool. I love swimming, and I, I'm a scuba diver and everything. And I got water in my ear right now. It's just throwing me right off. So if I'm not singing in key, you know why. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my part in this I see. Nothing but the blood of Jesus for my cleansing despite me. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the blood that makes me white as snow. No other fountain I Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing can cause in a Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not a good that I have done. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the blood that be white as snow, no other fountain I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. My heart and my peace, nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my righteousness, 
of Jesus. Oh, precious is the blood that makes me white as snow. No other found nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the blood that makes me white as snow. No other found. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Amen. Nothing but the blood. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Dave. Thank you for leading us in praising the Lord. Um, as has become sort of a thing that we do, uh, let's read this together. This is 1 Corinthians 1. And the yellow parts are the parts we say together. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. I think that's a really beautiful passage for leading into communion. Uh, we talked about this passage a couple weeks ago uh, in our walk through First Samuel, and it's very, very relevant to the story today of David and Goliath. God uses small things to shame the the things of the world that think that they're strong, and that's the key thing: is they think that they're strong, they think that they're wise. But it's foolishness and it's powerlessness compared to the the strength and the wisdom of God. Communion is about small things. We take a small little piece of bread and we take a small little sip of juice. But those small things are everything to us. They are what gives us our strength. They are what gives us those three words right at the end. Uh, Jesus' body and blood, that's our righteousness, that's our holiness, that's our redemption. Um, we too are small things. Uh, the, the older I get, the smaller I realize I am. We are small things. We are small people. But God uses small things to shame the strong. And there's a lot of muscles that get flexed in our world. There's a lot of um, foolishness that gets promoted as wisdom in our world. But God uses us small things to shame them. And he uses these small things we're about to take together to show what where power, where holiness, where redemption really come from. So 
take your communion out with me. Well, let's take the bread, a small thing that represents the way that we were made righteous. Now let's take the drink, the blood that makes us whole, makes us holy. And let's pray. Jesus, you too were a small person. You were um, a pilgrim rabbi that the world didn't think very much of when you were around. But look at you now, and we praise you. We, we give our lives to you because we know that in small things there is great wisdom. There is great power. In small things, we are saved. And so we thank you for your body and your blood. We just took a small representation of it today, but we know we know how much power there is in your body that was broken for us and your blood that was shed for us. We know that that's what makes us righteous, holy, and redeemed. We thank you, Jesus, and we pray all these things in your name. Amen. Zoe, I might have a job for you because I think my battery is going to die in my clicker. So if I wink at you, Zoe, that means you need to click the next air, the arrow for next, okay? All right. I've been forgetting to do this. Why don't you stand up, have a stretch before we get into the sermon? Angie told me, it's hard to listen in a mask. It's so... Cut your sermon down, for goodness sake. And that's, um, she was even harsher than that when she said it. Um, so that's good advice. And I, I cut a full page out of my sermon to try and help an advocate for all you long-suffering listeners. Familiarity is good. Familiarity brings comfort and understanding and appreciation. Familiarity is good. Until, of course, it isn't. Famously, familiarity breeds something, and it's not exactly a positive. Familiarity breeds contempt. Perhaps you experienced this during COVID-19. Being stuck in the same four walls with the same person or people can certainly bring about feelings that are less like compassion and more like contempt. Can you imagine poor Angie crammed in our small house with only me for regular adult company? Can you imagine how hard that would be? Familiarity breeds contempt. And our passage this morning is abundantly familiar. In fact, I'm guessing that if you were to head out on the streets and start polling random people, especially people who've never cracked a Bible in their life, asking them to name some non-Jesus Bible stories, which we would call Old Testament stories, I bet that almost everyone might refer to the creation account, Adam and Eve, Noah, the Ten Commandments. Those are stories that most people are familiar with, at least vaguely. There's a ton of Old Testament stories like that that have seeped into our larger, biblically illiterate society that affect our stories, our language, our culture. But there would be one story that would probably pop up more frequently than any other if I sent Madison and Isaac door-to-door polling our neighbors, which is your job on Tuesday, by the way. There is perhaps no Old Testament story that's more influential in society at large than today's story, David and Goliath. Just the mere mention of the name Goliath conjures vague understandings of underdogs overcoming tremendous odds in the face of overwhelming giants. Although, as an aside, when I hear the name Goliath, what I think of is maybe a decade ago, there was a guy in my cab, a a young French boy in my cabin at Bethel Bible Camp, and whenever he would talk about David and Goliath, he would say Goliath. And so when I hear the name Goliath, I think of Goliath. That's what I think of when I hear that name. But most people think of overcoming tremendous odds. They think of some underdog story. Newspapers love reporting on David and Goliath type stories. Hollywood loves making David and Goliath type movies. Every sports movie you've ever seen is always a David versus Goliath story. 
The story of David and Goliath is ingrained in our collective sub- subconscious as a, as a culture, even in a biblically illiterate, non-faith, um, non-faithful culture. David and Goliath is familiar, to say the least. But when it comes to David and Goliath, familiarity may not breed contempt, but it may breed other problems, like complacency. Perhaps you feel you know the story and there's no further truth or goodness or faith that you can mine from it. Or in completion, perhaps you don't know the whole story, or you're only familiar with the watered-down Sunday school version where Goliath doesn't end up getting decapitated. Or maybe it is contempt. Maybe you're so familiar with this story that the details, and more dangerously, the powerful truth behind those details, have become lifeless and cliché. Familiarity breeds contempt, and the story of David and Goliath is very, very familiar. But we're going to tackle it this morning anyways, with 16 chapters of 1 Samuel prehistory leading up and, and giving strength and understanding to this passage. We're going to examine some neglected details that will bring it to life, I hope, while stripping away the Sunday school cliches that feed contemptuousness. In other words, we're going to do the thing that you all beg me to do every single week. We're going to get to the point. Get to the point, Chris. And the point of this super familiar story can bring renewed passion and inspiration to even the most hardened and familiarized Bible reading Christians. That's not to say that I'm going to read it in some shocking new way, like I've got some secret truth to give to you. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm simply saying that if we invite the God that David put his faith in to the table here this morning, we will find that no Goliath can stand in our way either. And over the course of the next three weeks, we're going to have Davids from within our own community tell us stories of how God has empowered them to face giant enemies in their own lives. But let's get to the point. This is a very familiar story, but one that's worthy of deeper, faithful examination. It's also a long story and fairly gruesome at times. Just as a heads up, heads will literally roll in this passage. But grab your slings, faithful Davids, and let's see what we can do about the problematic Goliaths that you are facing. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soko in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes Damim between Soko and Azekah. If that means anything to any of you, congratulations, you're a smarter person than I am. Basically what this means is they're fighting in the south and the west of Israel. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels, which is, excuse me, about 125 pounds. That's just the armor um, on his uh, chest. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, which I assume means it was thick and powerful, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. That's about 15 pounds, so just the point of the spear was 15 pounds. His shield-bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for the battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistine's words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. And if you're anything like me, when you read this, you hear the voice of the giant pickle from the VeggieTales version say, Who will fight me? Now David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. 
Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time, he was old and well-advanced in years. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war. The firstborn was Eliab, the second Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. Now Jesse said to his son David, Take this ephah of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these ten cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. Early in the morning David left the flock with a shepherd, loaded up, and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to the battle position, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines, and greeted his brothers. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. When the Israelites saw the man, they all ran from him in great fear. Now the Israelites had been saying, Do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his father's family from taxes in Israel. David asked the men standing near him, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, This is what will be done for the man who kills him. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the desert? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now what have I done, said David? Can't I even speak? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter, and the men answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, You're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a boy, and he's been a fighting man from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by the hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield-bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was only a boy, ruddy and handsome, and he despised him. And the reason it mentions he's handsome and that's like a bad thing is because if like he doesn't look like a warrior. He looks like an innocent little boy. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. 
Today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the scabbard. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. Their dead were strewn along the Shearim road to Gath and Ekron. When the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered their camp. David took the Philistine's head and brought it to Jerusalem, and he put the Philistine's weapons in his own tent. As Saul watched David going out to meet the Philistine, he said to Abner, commander of the army, Abner, whose son is that young man? Abner replied, As surely as you live, O king, I don't know. The king said, Find out whose son this young man is. As soon as David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul. Here's a lovely detail with David still holding the Philistine's head. Whose son are you, young man? Saul asked him. David said, I am the son of your servant, Jesse of Bethlehem. So yeah, that's a familiar story. The righteous underdog securing victory over the arrogant giant because of his pluck, his resourcefulness, and his courage. That's what our culture has distilled from this passage. And they aren't wrong. David is displayed in that way throughout throughout this chapter. He has unwavering faith in the rightness of his actions and his zeal leads to triumph. You too can overcome right... (laughs) Sorry, trying to sound like a cheesy infomercial. You too can overcome tremendous odds if you believe in yourself and commit to your cause and blah, 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 yada, yada, yada. That's the familiar lesson of David and Goliath. Little guys with big beliefs can overcome big guys who deserve to topple. And that familiar lesson is there if you want to mine it for inspirational gold. But... That cultural understanding falls short of the point of David's encounter with Goliath. In fact, coming just short of the point, labeling it a mere underdog success story, we miss the point entirely. So what's the point? David is actually fighting three battles in this passage. There's battle number one, David versus Goliath. That's the main attraction. That's the obvious conflict in the story because somebody loses their head. And anytime somebody loses their head, you get the idea that's the primary conflict. But David's battle against the Philistine is only part of the point. There are two other battles being raged. Battle two is David versus Israel. And the only weapon David uses to win this battle is his courageous faith. This too is an important skirmish and adds depth to the point of this familiar story. And finally, battle number three is between David and Saul. Although at this point in the story, there's fraternity and mutual respect. There's even admiration between the two. This is only the beginning of the battle, which will rise from a grudge to a feud and then a full-on campaign in the next 14 chapters or so. All because of Saul's jealousy of David. But for now, in this blossoming battle, David gains the upper hand, again, because of his faith. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to talk briefly about all three battles and then get to the point of what all those battles mean for David and for God's people, for us. But first, it's interesting where the real battle takes place in Bible stories like this one. The action, most of the action in stories like this, take place far away from any battlefield. 
As Brueggemann says, we wait for this confrontation with Goliath for 47 verses. We know it's coming. The author, the narrator makes us wait and wait and wait. And it's over almost as soon as it begins, the actual battle. Scripture is the opposite of a Hollywood blockbuster. In the Bible, the gory action takes a back seat to the glorious speeches. It's all about the words. In fact, it's it's a war of words. This is true for all of these battles. David battles the fear and faithlessness of his fellow Israelites in his speech in verse 26. He battles the fear and faithlessness of Saul in three different statements between verses 32 and 39. And he battles the fearfulness and faithlessness of Goliath in verses 45 to 47. David goes to battle with a staff, a sling, and five smooth stones, but those aren't his actual weapons for doing battle. In each of these threefold battles, David is armored and weaponized by one thing alone, his courageous faith that flows from his heart for God. That's what he does battle with. David goes battle with his words, with his belief, with his faith. But let's begin with the battle against the giant Goliath. According to the Hebrew, Goliath was nine feet tall and his chest protector weighed 125 pounds. The rabbis who retranslated the Bible into Greek centuries later, they reduced him to six foot nine. Uh, They thought that that was a more realistic number. But either way, especially in that day and age, this was an enormous man. Six foot nine is enormous in our day and age. But everybody was a lot shorter back then. So he, he he was a giant, literally. He probably suffered from gigantism, which gigantism is a genetic defect. It gives you bad eyesight as well. So that's probably why David was able to speed around and whip him in the forehead with a stone. Um, That's not important. I just think that's interesting. But not only was Goliath large, he was also superior militarily. He was fully armored out. Goliath stood literally head and shoulders above everyone else. He was as terrifying as, as any champion you can imagine. And the fact that he stood heads and shoulders above everyone else should remind us of something in the book of 1 Samuel, but we'll get to that. But despite the Philistines' fear for resume, and despite being a tiny little shepherd boy who only just that morning had been tending the sheep, and despite the terror that had gripped his countrymen, David demonstrates exactly zero fear in Goliath's presence. He's got personal experience to bolster his courage, the stories of the bear and the lion, but personal experience isn't what fuels his righteous fury or his sense of justice. Instead, David is motivated by two incredibly strong D words that continually crop up in this passage. One is defy, the other is deliver. The word defy is used of Goliath six times in the chapter, in the NIV. First by Goliath himself in verse 10, when he says, I defy the ranks of Israel. Then once by the narrator in verse 23, where it says Goliath shouted his usual defiance. And once by the fear-stricken Israelites in verse 25, where it says he comes out to defy Israel. The first three emphasize Goliath's defiance of Israel and her outmatched petrified army. That's who Goliath is defying, the nation of Israel and her armies. Not so with the last three uses of the word defy. In those instances, it's David who is quoting as using the word about Goliath. In verse 26, he says, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? In verse 36, your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. And in verse 45, he says to Goliath's face, I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Do you see the enormous difference between when David speaks of Goliath's defiance and when everyone else speaks of Goliath's defiance? The first three times Goliath and the Israelite are army speak of 
the Philistine defying merely Israel. He jeopardizes the safety and prosperity of a nation, and the injustice against a weaker opponent cannot stand. It's legitimate. God is always against forceful people who use their force to subjugate and oppress lower people, lesser people. But that's not what fuels David's righteous fury. In David's eyes, Goliath must be struck down for a much larger and holier purpose than merely defense of a country. He must be struck down for defying the living God. It's God's glory that's at stake. For everyone else, Israel's in jeopardy. But for David, God's glory is in jeopardy. In fact, David is the only one in this entire passage who seems to have any concern for God's glory whatsoever. And you can see it in his response to Goliath. David doesn't just go to battle against Goliath because Goliath is a bully. He goes to battle against Goliath because of the vile blasphemy that the the Philistine spits out about God himself. It's the Philistines boasting against God that David hears, not the boasting against Saul or Israel or their little patchwork militia. And it's this defiance of God's glory that propels David, a mere shepherd boy, to take on the giant warrior before him. And it's this this defiance that calls David to trust in the second D word in this passage, deliverance or rescue. Rescue and deliver, by the way, they're the same word in the Hebrew. And this word too is peppered throughout David's speeches. In verse 35, he rescues the sheep from the mouth of the barren lion. In verse 37, he trusts that God will rescue David from the hand of the Philistine as God had rescued or delivered him from the hands of the vicious beasts. And to Goliath's own face, which is soon to be dislodged from the rest of him, David proclaims, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hands. David behaves courageously because he trusts in the deliverance offered by his God. David knows whose hands are mightier, and it's not the hands covered in chainmail and gripping a 20-pound javelin. It's not even the hands holding the humble sling and stone. David's not saying he is stronger. God is being defied, and because his heart belongs to Yahweh, David cannot abide such disgraceful arrogance. And so he acts with courage, but it's only courageous to the outsider. David only looks courageous to those who are witnessing without eyes of faith. Through David's eyes, with the force of the heavenly armament strengthening and supporting him, it's a no-brainer. The battle is already won. It only makes sense to join the victorious side and reclaim the glory that rightfully belongs to God away from the boastful, arrogant, defiant mouth of Goliath. David doesn't see it as courage. He sees it as just, this is what has to happen. This is, of course God's going to defend me. Of course God's going to fight because this is his fight. It's his glory that's at stake. And so David fights for two reasons, Goliath's unholy defiance of the living God and the deliverance that David knows that he can rely on. He fights for God, knowing that God fights for him and knowing that the battle has already been won without even a sword in his hand, as it says in verse 50. God always fights for the small and the oppressed who seek his deliverance. But that's only one battle. There are two more that David is engaged in, and I've mentioned them already. This one is quick. The first battle he faces is the battle against Goliath as he approaches the front and hears the giant's boastful claims. But even as that battle begins brewing, David engages in another, the fear of his people. It's significant that David alone speaks of the injustice Goliath represents to the glory of the living God. Nobody else seems to trust in God's presence. They don't even seem to care about God's presence or his glory or his providence or his power. And so the first battle that David actually engages in isn't the battle against Goliath. It's a battle against the defeatist attitudes of his countrymen. Everybody assumes there's no way we can win this. They're all fleeing and hiding and cowering in fear. You don't flee in fear if you trust the God who just recently toppled the idols and rescued himself from the temple of these same Philistines. 
The same God who sent thunder from Samuel to scatter these same Philistines. The same God who used the bold faith of Jonathan to defeat these same Philistines. Over and over and over in this book, small people with tremendous faith overcome huge odds to defeat the Philistines, and still they cower in fear. You flee in fear when you see only a giant, not when you see an opportunity for God to receive glory. Even David's own brother, Eliab, his oldest brother, who had witnessed David's anointing one chapter earlier, even Eliab gives in to faithful, or sorry, faithless defeatism. He calls David's character into question. He sees only a little shepherd boy with a taste for bloodlust. He doesn't see what David sees. He doesn't see defiance of Almighty God. He doesn't see an opportunity for deliverance. Before he can battle the giant, David must first battle the faithlessness and fearfulness of his own people. In winning that battle, David proves that he is worthy to lead those same people with his own heart for God, replacing their fear with belief, filling their hearts with faith. But there is one particular countryman who David battles much more subtly in this chapter. It's the seeds of a battle that will rage throughout the remaining 14 chapters that follow, and that's David versus Saul, the two anointed leaders of Israel. They are going to be clashing for the whole rest of 1 Samuel. You may have noticed that Saul doesn't seem to have any idea who David is in this chapter, despite adoring David upon meeting him for the first time in the last chapter. I read about this discrepancy until I could hardly keep my eyes open, and I won't get into it here. I'll spare you it. Suffice it to say there is no perfectly satisfactory reason for it, and I don't know what to tell you. I don't know what to say. However, I do know this. Saul's confusion about David's family line, even though he, just in the last chapter, knows who David is, but Saul's confusion about David's family line allows for what's called an inclusio between chapter 16 and 17. That's a fancy Bible scholar word that just means bracketed idea. Chapter 16 and chapter 17 are bracketed by, by this thing. You may notice that the very first verse in chapter 16 mentions Jesse of Bethlehem. Go ahead and check for yourself. The very first verse of chapter 16 mentions Jesse of Bethlehem. And the very last verse of chapter 17 also mentions Jesse of Bethlehem. And to Jewish readers who were attuned to this kind of stuff and in society that was oral stories were given orally that was a big red flag that was a big sign that you're supposed to understand them together from jesse of bethlehem to jesse of bethlehem everything in between it all flows from the same idea they're all connected directly so chapter 16 is about david a nobody from nowhere who gets anointed because of his heart for god and the other half of that chapter is that the same david Everywhere he goes brings the hope of the Spirit of the Lord with him. That's chapter 16. And in chapter 17, his heart that we met in chapter 16 and his hope that we met in chapter 16 come together to deliver Israel from the one who defies the people and more crucially defies their God. So these two chapters are connected between the Jesses. That's part of the reason why Saul's like, who is this guy? Oh, it's the son of Jesse. But the other thing Saul's confusion allows for, besides this inclusio, this black bracketed idea, is it shows just how out of the loop Saul is. And he's been getting more and more out of the loop for the last few chapters. That's a common theme in this chapter as well, in delightfully subversive ways. Here's just a few of the more delicious jabs taken in this chapter at the faltering king. Number one, you know how everyone is all worked out about how Goliath is literally head and shoulders above everyone else? Remember how I said that that should sound familiar? Who else in Israel is head and shoulders taller than everyone else? Saul, the person who is best suited to address the physicality of Goliath, 
is Saul himself, who is also head and shoulders above everyone else. But he refuses to do so. He refuses to engage in battle with Goliath, even though physically and just as king of his people, he's the one who should step up to the fight. But he doesn't do it. He's too fearful and too cowardly. It's an open condemnation of Saul, but it's also an important reminder that the Lord looks at the heart. Physical appearance counts for nothing. Number two, so that's the first way they, they kind of undermine Saul. Number two, you know that cute little detail about how David arrives to the battle and he's dropping off the food with the keeper of supplies in verse 22? He mentions David runs up with his cheese and his wine and his bread or whatever, and he's like, hey, can you hold this for me? I got to go see what all the battle's about. It's kind of adorable, but it's also a dig against Saul. It's a reminder of chapter 10 where we first meet Saul, and Saul, he misses his coronation, ceremony where he was going to be crowned king of Israel. He misses it because he's hiding among the supplies. David doesn't cower and hide. He's so eager to engage, he gives up his menial job and rushes to defend Yahweh's honor. He leaves his stuff with the keeper of the supplies. Not so the king. The king, he refuses to show any leadership against the the Philistines. He is once again hiding among the supplies, showing his cowardice. So there's another dig at Saul. And the third one, the last one, In verse 31, Saul sends for David, seemingly pleased that there's someone in Israel who's still willing to fight for God and country. But it's David who speaks first, which is against protocol. When Saul sends for David, David shows up. And it's not Saul who speaks first, even though he's king. David speaks first because he's already primary even over over even the king. It's the narrator's little way of saying David's already more important than this guy. But once the king does speak, he initially sees only what the world sees of David. He sees an ill-prepared, overmatched, outgunned little boy. There's no way you could fight this giant. Look at you. You're tiny. He's been fighting since he was a teenager. To his credit, Saul is willing to trust in David's courageous faith. He allows the shepherd boy to face Goliath, despite the fact that if David is crushed, all of Israel is crushed with him. But even then, Saul's faithlessness is demonstrated again. He insists David be armored up. He insists that David appear as the world would deem fit for a warrior. When David sheds Saul's own armor, as it says right in the passage, he's shedding Saul himself. He's not just shedding the armor. He's getting rid of everything Saul represents. Fearfulness, uh, desire to conform to what the world thinks is important. He's getting rid of all of that. He is declaring that Saul's way will accomplish nothing. A man after God's heart need only be armed by a righteous anger against defiant injustice, a faith in God's powerful deliverance, and a willingness to step forward and be used by God. That's, that's all that is needed. Saul has none of those things. Injustice makes Saul withdraw. Faithlessness makes Saul cower. Unwillingness makes Saul useless. This is a warning, I think, to us as well. And so Saul has been replaced. David wins the first and most decisive battle against Saul, even though they aren't even foes yet. They're kind of friends. But he wins the battle against the defeatist faithlessness of his own countrymen. And he wins the battle against the defiant arrogance of Goliath. He's winning a lot of battles here. As Hannah, this book's first hero, had written back in chapter 2, It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Saul and Israel saw their own lack of strength and they despaired. Goliath trusted in his mighty strength and was broken. But David... The point of the story of David versus Goliath and David versus Israel and David versus Saul isn't the little guy beats the big guy. That's not the point. The point of the story is that the little guy loved and trusted the biggest of all guys. 
David drew his strength from God alone. That's the point of 1 Samuel 17. It's not just all underdogs are always victorious. That's obviously not true. The point is when underdogs put their trust in the God who sees injustice and hates injustice, the God who will not be defied, the God who delivers small people and strengthens small people, when we put our faith in that God, we've already won the victory because he's already won the victory. The fight was never a fair one, but not towards Goliath. It was never fair because David was fighting for the glory of God. He fought to demonstrate these words, which which David shouted in the valley. He shouts these words, not just to the the faithless Philistines, but the unfaithful Israelites. He shouts to, to everyone who will hear. And really, David's the only one who gets it at this point. So everyone needs to hear this message, including perhaps me and you. Here's the message. All those who gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's. The victory has already been won. David fought to demonstrate the glory of God, a holiness that cannot withstand proud defiance against him, a holiness that empowers small people who have great faith, and a holiness that delivers those who put their trust in God alone. That's the point of David versus Goliath. God chooses the small things of the world to shame the strong, as we read in 1 Corinthians 1, because in our smallness, his strength shines through. It becomes obvious that it's not us winning the battle. It's him. David is smaller than Goliath in every way, but God empowers him because of his heart for God's glory. David is smaller than all of Israel in every way, but delivers all of Israel because of his trust in Almighty God. And David is smaller than Saul, again, in every way, but he has already supplanted Saul because of his act of faith. He's smaller than Saul in every way except his heart. His heart for God is much bigger. And David is smaller than God as all people and all things are. But David commits himself to the hands of that God, and in doing so, topples the defiant giant with one smooth stone, then cuts off the head so he cannot rise again. It's a familiar story. David is small, Goliath is big. But the real story is that God is biggest of all, and in him, there is deliverance from all enemies that defy him. The shepherd boy has proven his credentials to become king. If we wish to experience victory, we need the same credentials. We need to fight against defiant injustice, to fight against defiant fear in ourselves, and to fight against defiant pride, again, in ourselves, and to be delivered by putting our trust in the God who empowers small people to overcome giants for his glory. To illustrate this truth, this was, I know this was an academic sermon. I love academic sermons, and Angie's like, give us practical. Well, here's the practical. The practical will be over the next three weekends. I've lined up an extremely, I'm extremely excited for this. Unless plans change, and if they change, that's fine too, whatever. But over the next three weeks, we're going to hear stories from three people to help illustrate how we can be delivered from big problems or we can be agents of deliverance for others who have these same problems and put our trust in an even bigger God. And these are three people who I admire and respect Uh, And they're going to share their stories of Goliaths that they have faced. Angeline will speak of deliverance against the defiant giant of injustice. Bob will speak of deliverance against the defiant giant of doubt and uncertainty. And David, not son of Jesse David, but son of Clyde Christian Bible Church David, he will speak on deliverance against the defiant giant of suffering and grief, a giant that he's very much facing in this moment. They will put flesh onto my message today and will show just how inspirational this familiar story can be. I've been excited about this for about a month now, 
And I can't wait to hear these three Davids speak of their ongoing battles and victories against their Goliaths. By the way, if anybody else wants to contribute, if anybody's else like, I have a story that I, I have a Goliath that I'm facing, please let me know. We can make that, we can go from three to four uh, or five or six or 12, um, whatever. I'm ha- quite happy to do that because I'm looking forward to hearing your stories of trusting in God in the face of, of Goliaths. So you can look forward to that as well. So that's facing Goliath part one. David knew that the victory was already God's. He fought because of the defiance of God's glory. And he fought because he knew deliverance was already was already his. It's a fight that we can have too in ourselves, in our lives, and the, with the people around us. Those We can face those Goliaths as well, even though we are small people. Let's pray. God, you are good and you are strong and you are holy. And even though we are small, we thank you for our smallness and we trust that in our smallness, your greatness and your glory will shine through. Each one of us is facing giants, whether it's disbelief and doubt, whether it's self-righteousness or pride or ego or whatever, whatever giants we are facing, Jesus, we know and we trust that you've already defeated them. The victory is already yours. All we have to do is be willing to step into the fight. Um, Thank you for your deliverance, Jesus. Thank you for all the Goliaths that you've already toppled in us and continue to topple in us. I look forward to hearing from Angeline and from Bob and from Dave about the giants that they are facing. I'm excited for them to put flesh onto this story. But each one of us has this story. We are living this story already. Jesus, you have conquered all the things that trip us up, that hinder us, that attack us. You've already defeated them. So help us to put our trust in you who deliver. Help us to combat anything in us or around us that defies your glory. Jesus, we pray all these things in your name. Amen. Oh, yes. (laughs) I forgot. Uh, Madison and Isaac, come on up. Thank you, Ange. Okay. I told these guys that I was going to ask them a few questions. Hello. Perfect. Got it. I just love the attention, you know. I just (laughs) like it. (laughs) I'm trying to talk here, Madison. I told these guys that I would uh, ask them a few questions so you can get to know them. So first of all, tell us a little bit about yourself. That's an incredibly open-ended question, but tell us a bit about yourself. Where did you grow up? What did you do for school this last year? That kind of stuff. Ladies first. Okay. Okay. Um, Well, I'm Madison. Madison. I grew up um, like in between Westlock and Barhead. I went to school in Westlock. I mean, I've also been working here the last two summers. Maybe you recognize me. I don't know. Um, <laughs> um, and I just finished my second year at the King's University, and I'm taking business there. So, yeah. Hello. I'm Isaac Kwan. <clears throat> you guys might know me. Uh, I'm from Clyde. Family owns the Petroquan over there. <laughs> I am in my first year of business still at Nate. It's pretty great. Went to ABC, so yeah, that's pretty much it. Excited to be here. ABC being Alberta Bible College, but yes. also After School Bible Club. He is a longtime veteran of After School Bible Club as well. And Bob was his bus driver. So yeah. There's a little bit of trivia for you. Okay. Um, let me pull up my questions here. Second question. How are you excited to be used by God for his glory this summer? Um, what are you looking forward to about serving here in Clyde this summer? Um, 
I'm excited to see what we come up with. <laughs> um, I think that it's going to be a really unique summer, and I'm going to kind of develop different skills that I wouldn't get to work on or stretch myself in certain ways if it was just a normal summer. Um, so I'm excited to um, develop like the relationships that I've already started to make with you guys and with um, like kids in the community, um, and that will take on some unique forms, and I'm excited to see what that ends up looking like. Uh, looking forward to hanging out. Um, I haven't been very involved in this community, even though I've been here for most of my life. So excited to be, you know, involved in the community and helping out. Great. And last question. Unless there's anything else you want to talk about, that's cool too. But how are you hoping to grow in your own personal faith this summer? Um, I think that I'm just excited to um, have a better sense of the Holy Spirit leading me in different things. I think when I don't have a specific schedule or a list of things, um, I'm, we're kind of forced to rely on the Holy Spirit more. And I'm so, I guess I'm just looking forward to having a better um, understanding and better familiarity, I guess, with like the Holy Spirit leading me, um, as I think that'll be what a lot of our programming will end up looking like, or at least trying to figure out what our programming is going to be. And so I think that's going to be really good for me anyways. I think this opportunity would, you know, I'm kind of stepping out of my comfort zone a little bit. So it's definitely growing opportunity anytime you're, you know, not feeling comfortable. So um, and attending church more regularly will definitely help growth. So, yeah. Beautiful. I'm very, despite me forgetting all about them just now. I'm very excited to be working with these two. These are two young people who I've had the pleasure of um, being involved with um, for many years. Youth group, camp, serving together, connections with Bible college and stuff. They're just two excellent young people with uh, tremendous hearts for loving people. And I'm excited that we get to glorify God together this summer. So Isaac, we... We hired him like three days before the deadline. I put it on Facebook, and he's like, hey, I'm." he turned down other offers to come and, and be here, um, which is great. And Madison, I kind of strung her along for a month or so, like, hey, I don't know if we're getting this summer soon. And she was very patient. And uh, I'm, I'm thrilled that it's these two and to get to work with them. So can we give them a round of applause, please? They're worthy of it. And uh, make sure you get to know them this summer. Thanks, guys. And uh, have a great week. We'll talk to you again. The point of the story is that the little guy loved and trusted the biggest of all guys. I like Bob Williams' joke. Summer was on a Wednesday this year. Cut your sermon down, for goodness sake. Who will fight me?